This is Tesco V, the Lansing Liberace. That's right, I've been doing this shit for 30 years. You know why? To come out and show you how punk rock is done. And you're listening to Signal to Noise, cockbags. Hello and welcome everyone to episode 35 of the Signal to Noise podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and I am here tonight with the fabulous Mr. Brian Ganey. Brian, how you doing, man? Doing well, man. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. Hey, no problem, man. Thanks for finally coming on. Like, Brian and I have been talking about this since I moved. So if you're a long-time listener in the show, you know I used to live in Pittsburgh. Um, about two years ago, I moved down to the South Carolina uh, area, and uh, Brian and I worked together. And um, I've had a blast talking with him because he shares a lot of the same music interests that I do, um, as well as a lot of ones that, that I don't. So it's kind of fun you know, sharing those things. But... Brian also worked in radio, which is one of the industries that's probably all like most fascinated me. So continuing with my last two episodes where we've really been kind of trying to peel the curtain back on the music industry and just kind of talk about where we are and where things are going, I thought Brian would be a great guest to compliment that. So Brian, man, um, tell us about your days in radio. Sure, sure. So I started out uh, going to broadcasting school in 1993. I had always been interested in radio as a kid, and uh, I did the whole thing you always hear about. I had the radio station in my bedroom and listened to music and everything, and I just grew up loving the radio. And so I wanted to get into it, so I went to broadcasting school in Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, I did that, ran through the program, and as part of the, of the, the curriculum, you had to have an internship. So I actually had a difficult time finding a, a radio station that would let me work for free, which, I, which is very odd. But so I hooked up with a radio station in Ohio. It was a talk radio station, so an AM station that had, uh, you know, news, weather, sports, and talk radio. And I, I started working there as an intern in 1993, and uh, I interned for a couple of months, and then they went ahead and hired me on part-time, uh, essentially just, you know, running the controls during, you know, the overnight, which was repeat talk shows and the occasional uh, Reds baseball game, that kind of thing. And just over the course of a 12-year career there, I uh, managed to do just about every job in the building. Um, I eventually, you know, got to where I was doing news and then, uh, you know, sports, weather. Uh, and then for a long time, I had my own talk show uh, every night from 9 to 11, Monday through Friday. And so I, I got to wear a bunch of different hats, but I got exposed to really every sort of every facet of the business we they have a uh, a country radio station in the same building which was the number one station in town and then they also had an 80s uh, radio station in the building so i got to make a lot of friends you know in the various music formats and uh and there was a tv station there as well so i got to meet a lot of the cv people and get to know them and meet the famous people that came through and and all of that. So that, that's kind of a background of sort of my radio background. And then after, in 2005, I moved to South Carolina, where we are now. And I did some freelancing stuff, some news writing and, and website writing and stuff like that for another couple of years. And then and then I just left the business. Um, it, it really is a vastly different business now than it was when I got into it. And I just found that I couldn't really make a living. Um, it wasn't a reliable source of income for me. So uh, I got into to corporate training where you and I work now. All right. So I, I want to back up because you mentioned something that as much as you and I have talked, I don't think I realized. You said you went to broadcasting school. So I yes. cannot tell you how many times growing up on TV. And I mean, you know, you grew up in, in Ohio. I grew up in western Pennsylvania. So, you know, we're, we're pretty much, you know, fairly same, same region. I mean, you were closer to, were you closer to Cincy than I was? Because like, what, Dayton, right? Yeah, so I was in Dayton, so I'm an hour north of uh, Cincinnati, so it's uh, uh, southwestern Ohio. Okay, so I grew up with those Columbia School of Broadcasting um, ads on the TV and all that sort of stuff, and I always thought I wanted to do that, and I never knew anybody who actually went to broadcasting school, so... What do you learn in broadcasting school? Um, nothing I didn't already know. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, you know, I would tell I would tell anyone that 
in in 2016, if you actually had an interest in radio, I would say save your money. Uh, don't go to broadcasting school. It's a waste of money. Um, the, the, actually, the main benefit of it uh, was the people that I met. So the, the networking and the contacts that I made. But I could have done that without the broadcasting school. Okay. So it, it really didn't. I realized just kind of playing around with my own uh, radio station in my bedroom, in my bedroom, plus having uh, having worked at a high school radio station, um, I knew all that I needed to know about radio. Uh, I didn't need broadcasting school, so and I kind of figured that out once I got there. But then I had started, so I wanted to finish. But yeah, it, it really, I think it's a. I'm sure there are good ones out there, but it, it really is like a lot of trade schools. Um, the way that you would best learn would be to go somehow get a job in that field and start doing it and then kind of work your way up and develop your skills and talents and things like that. And, uh, so yeah, you weren't missing a whole lot, uh, you know, seeing those commercials, they, I'm sure they made it look very glamorous, but, uh, it's uh, very much not when you're first starting out. Oh, they really did, man. They really did. And I mean, you know, I, I, I grew up on the radio like you did. I have a total love for radio. Um, even though nowadays I don't listen to much just because it's, I feel like radio hasn't changed. Like the business has changed in the past 20 years, but the sure. programming hasn't changed, at least for, 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 for the stations that I like. Let's put that word, the style that I like, it seems. But um, like I, I like podcasting. Like one of the reasons I got into podcasting is because I love radio, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I love this format. So um, I have no idea where I was actually going with this. Um, and what was I going to ask you next? Oh, so you'd also mentioned like the news desk thing. Can you confirm for us what the news anchors wear from the waist down? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the answer to that question is they wear only what you see on TV. So many, 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 many TV people that I know would wear, you know, a suit coat, tie, um, you know, perfectly pressed uh, white dress shirt. And have on a pair of uh, running shorts or sweatpants and flip flops. Um, if it's not on TV, they are not dressed up. That's hysterical. Uh, so yeah, I mean it. I, I, there were many, many, many times I would see the sports guy walking down the hallway, um, you know, with his you know suit coat on and dress shirt and tie, and he's got all the makeup on. And, and TV people look really ridiculous, uh, especially now with the you know HD. <laughs> uh, they have they have so much makeup on. They look like they're you know they look like they're being prepared for a funeral viewing. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's the way that it shows on TV. But yeah, they would have on just I mean you you know their boxer shorts or just some shorts or jeans. A lot of the time, jeans was probably the most popular, but lots of sweatpants. Yeah, they don't care. It's so, just the uniform. Yeah. Could I have gotten away with a speedo? Wait, we're with oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A speedo would have been okay? As long as it's not on TV. Now, if you're you you know if you the weather guy where it's going to be, <laughs> you know, where it's where it's going to be a full body shot, uh, you could not get away with the speedo. Oh, but, oh what if it was uh, the Olympics and you're a good swimmer? <laughs> you know, but, it, it, well, you know, you, it, hey, you know, yeah. it depends how you look, how you look at it, I guess, you know, uh, whether or not they feel like it would offend the audience. Yeah. But there were, there were. I mean, I watch now things like ESPN and things like that, and, and a lot of the a lot of the anchoring is done just you know standing up, and so I think well those guys have to you know they get to wear the whole suit, but uh, the guys behind the desk that don't come out from behind the desk, there's no chance that they have on a full thing. It's just it's it's TV is by its very nature a very kind of make believe fake, um, you know the set. You know, people, it always looks when you're watching on TV, the TV set always looks like this big, amazing thing. Like it must be in like an airplane hangar and it's just this huge involved. But when you get, you know, when you get there and you look at it, you realize all that you see is, is exactly what's on TV. And if they tilt the camera up a couple of inches, the the whole land of make believe is gone. You know, it's just, it's like they're on just this little tiny set, but that's all they need for TV. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. So now you mentioned you were on an AM radio station. Yes. Um, so what what are some key differences between like an AM and an FM station? Sure. So the differences are many. Uh, one would be the programming. 
So generally speaking, AM stations, because the sound quality is not as good, uh, it's more going to be your news and information and talk radio um, because it's, it's AM, it's amplitude modulation. It's not, it's, you know, years ago, you know, 50, 60 years ago, they played music on AM because FM hadn't been invented yet. Um, but so AM is going to be lower quality sound quality. So, you know, news, weather, sports, information, traffic reports, all, all that kind of thing. So that's, that's the big deal. Not that there aren't AM music stations. There are even today. But for the most part, um, it's just going to be talk, you know, news, weather, sports, information. That's what's on AM. Um, the other thing is just the, the way that it's broadcast is so drastically different than FM. Um, the, the, the way that, for instance, AM transmitters interact with the atmosphere is so different uh than fm where fm you just you turn it on it's fifty thousand watts you leave it on all the time it reaches a defined area the whole time whereas the with am the fcc has to manage uh the am band a lot more because at night am signals are carried further uh, by the atmosphere so a lot of most am stations in fact have to turn their power down when the sun sets to avoid interfering with each other. So uh, another interesting thing is uh, AM, a lot of AM stations have three towers right in a row that, that transmit uh, as opposed to the FM, which is usually just one. Really? Uh, How come? I, I don't know why. It's There's some there's some there's something to do with the the way that it's broadcast, that it just requires that. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I never got into engineering enough to know why it was that way. Um, but it's just, it's very, it's very, very different. Um, but then, you know, because of the way that, that AM interacts with the atmosphere, it carries the signals around the world. So there would be guys in other parts of the world, they do this as kind of a hobby that have really high powered receivers that would listen to AM stations. I used, we used to get cassettes from guys like in Sweden and Europe that had caught, listened to me on the, the radio. And they would, you know, record it and send it and say, hey, you know, we heard you on this, that, and the other thing. Wow. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's just, just very different. Wow. It's, also, it's also a completely different audience. Be, you know, it tends to skew older. It tends to be an older demographic. Yeah. Uh, you know, people, you know, grandpa in his car listening to the ball games, or, you know, or people who are more political that are interested in the, the latest news, more information, uh, things like that. And, and actually, you know, it, AM is is always it's always been on the verge of dying out. Like it's always been the case that you know it really is just going to go away. You know, I don't. I'm not sure most millennials would even know what AM radio was or how to access it. Um, but it's still, especially in the bigger markets, it's still kicking. It's still alive. It's still around. But a lot of the big radio companies have switched their AM sta- their talk stations over to FM. You know, for the better sound quality and also. A lot of uh, smartphones and MP3 players and things like that just have an FM radio in it. Um, so they want to make sure that people can access the programming so that they can charge the advertising and and those kinds of things. So it's just it's 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 very different. It, it really is just very two different audiences, two different ways of broadcasting. Um, but I loved it. I, I loved my time in radio. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I just I just never for some reason could really make a living at it. That's crazy. Because, <clears throat> I mean, like, growing up, I mean, radio radio was probably, like, the first celebrities that I came in contact with, like, every oh, day, sure. so to speak. And not that I ever met them, but, I mean, you hear these people, they're talking every day. You start to feel like you know them after they share the stories. I mean, like, I think about, like, the, the two local FM guys. Um, it was Scott Paulson and Jim Crenn in the morning on DVE for the longest time. And then um, the KDK guys, I'm sure somebody mentioned them. Like, I know I listened to them with my dad and stuff. But just, you know, you hear them every day doing this stuff and you, you really think like, well, wow, they're famous, you know, like, oh yeah, and, and, you know, you, you, as, especially as a young child, you equate famous with big bucks. So if I heard you on a talk show, I'd be like, man, he must be bringing in the money, you know? Yeah, that, that was, that was, there was a time when that would have been the case, uh, now, like you mentioned, KDKA. So, in a large market like, or a comparably large market like Pittsburgh, uh, back in the glory days of the '70s and '80s, the the people on KDKA probably did make bank for the time. They were probably doing really well. Probably their morning show guys were making six figures. Um, 
you know, but that was during a time where they were making great, you know, the radio station was generating incredible revenue. They were, you know, radio was a big, big advertising medium and they were able to charge a lot of money for those commercials. Um, but those days have kind of passed. You yeah. still have your, you still have your big, big radio stations, um, and they are still able to charge money for their their commercials. But just the big, big salaries, you know, the rich morning guys, especially in kind of the down markets, uh, you know, or something like a Charleston, South Carolina, or even a Columbia, or a Dayton, Ohio, or Jacksonville, Florida, places like that. You know, those are markets. You know, fifty through seventy-five. And if you're doing morning radio in those markets, chances are very, very good that you're making, you know, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year. Oh, wow. Um, so, I mean, it's yeah, it's and that's just the way it is now. Um, but, man, there was a time when it was, you know, it, it was the rock star lifestyle. It was fame, local fame. You know, you're kind of a big fish in a little pond, but you were locally famous. You made a lot of money. And, uh, you know, everything that goes with it, you know, these these guys that did these morning shows, you know, they would have all these girlfriends and, you know, they would be kind of famous locally. And that's that's kind of largely gone away. OK, so speaking of the morning shows, you and I were talking about the, the other day because I was talking about Bob and Tom. And yeah, that show has been going since 83. It's syndicated. And, you know, I told you that once I moved to Tennessee, I started realizing all the stuff that I thought was so funny on DVE. A lot of these skits actually came from the Bob and Tom show. Like, these guys created a lot of them. And then you pulled the curtain back even further and told me about, what was it, the Laugh subscription or whatever it was? What what was that thing? Yeah, so there are, uh, it, it's just, my, my point was you're talking about Bob and Tom, which, you know, that's yeah. a great show, very talented guys, uh, funny guys. But the one thing that I learned kind of working in radio and having a lot of friends that work in radio and knowing a lot of guys that do morning radio is uh, they rely a lot on writers and comedy services. That was so, a comedy service. Yeah, so they would subscribe to uh, a service, and this is in the 90s, so kind of pre-email, but it was like a faxing service. So they would pay either money or uh, in commercial time, they would pay for just a daily service that would fax them X number of pages of jokes that they could then use on the air as if they were their, if they, you know, as if they were their own. Uh, and that that extends to everything. So uh, impersonators and and just funny commercials, making fun of something in the news, and just anything you know where they could take that content and put it on their morning show and and have it just be high quality and be a hit and be funny and and that kind of thing. And I, I mean, those guys all come up with their own original material, and they they're in their role for a reason, and they're talented. But there's really a huge kind of behind the scenes industry on uh you know formats and writing and all that stuff man hey, you know it's funny like as you're as you're saying all this and talking about the fax machines and things like this i mean you know we kind we kind of grew up with all this stuff like the t- this technology was was invented maybe a few years before we were born and then we saw it mature and then i mean like the computer like i can remember I, I'll never forget this. My dad talking about getting a new hard drive for our computer. And he's like, we're never going to need a, another hard drive because it's so big. And it was 20 megabytes. Oh, wow. Megabytes, right? Not not even like a full gigabyte. 20 <laughs> megabytes, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, to think about that now, like I've got uh, 128 gigabytes of storage on my phone. Yeah, you know, and and just you think about what the computer age and the internet has done. It like it really has changed everything. Because I mean, you know, as you're talking here, it's starting to it's starting to click for me that TV and radio were the only two ways of getting information for the longest right. time. Yeah, you know that and newspapers. So you had three ways of getting it. You either read it on the news, listened to it on the radio, watched it on TV. That that was it. That was your choices. Yeah, I mean, you, if you look through history, you kind of have the evolution of information delivery. Yeah. So it started out, you know, just one person talking to another, and people lived in defined areas and were blissfully ignorant of what was going on in the world because information just didn't travel. And then, you know, you think back to, like, Paul Revere, you know, delivering news, and then the invention of the printing press and the newspaper. And, yeah, I mean, the Internet and the computer age have completely transformed everything to the point that it is and I mean this you can argue this is progress or not but it has completely destroyed entire industries yeah uh, because what it, you think we were talking about radio what what is a radio station um, all the if you turn on the radio right now 
uh, in the evening time or overnights, and you hear a radio station, what you're actually hearing is just uh, is just sound files on a hard drive. You're just hearing songs playing, just as if you had lined them up in iTunes yourself. <laughs> you're listening. You're listening to one song after another, and in between the songs are the commercials. And if there's a guy on the radio uh, talking about the song you just heard and the one that's coming up, or or you know, reading some content, he recorded that probably three days ago. You know, sitting in his underwear in his house. Um, so it's it's all. I mean, I have friends that, that they call it voice tracking. Yeah. So I have so I have friends that voice track for ten radio stations. So I'll hear because all these big radio groups own you know a couple hundred radio stations at least. So I'll hear the same. I'll travel. I'll hear the same guy in every town um, because it's just easy. It's just so easy that you know you have the computer program. Yeah. And they ha- they get the script emailed to them of what to say, and they just do it. And then the the software just inserts the inserts their voice files in between the songs and uh i always tell people they, they say well how do i know if that if the announcer is live or not i'll say well did they give the time and temperature if they did they're there if they didn't they're not <laughs> and uh i've never thought about that yeah most of the time they're not i mean yeah, if they're not cool. if they're not talking about something that's that's happening right now so in morning radio you turn it on what are they talking about you know they're talking about the news they're talking about traffic they're very clearly talking about timely things, but everything else, sometimes even down to, we used to pre-record like radio remotes. Hey guys, you know, we're live at such and such car dealer. Come on out. Those we recorded all before we left the radio station. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it it's, it's all theater of the mind. Wow. It's all, just, it's, it is bare minimum. What do we need to do to make this sound good at the least amount of effort? So, it's uh, it's so different, but yeah, the computer has really changed everything. I mean, it really has. You know, you I, I think about when I would apply for jobs and I would have a, an audition tape and I would mail it to people. Well, now you could just email the MP3 file. You know, you don't need any of that. So yeah, it's 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 very much changed. So what was the radio station itself like? So you're in the broadcast room. Like, what kind of desk did you have? What kind of mics? Like, this is where I get geeky because you know th- this this show is all about. Uh, music gear and that sort of stuff. So, like, sure. What was what was that setup like? It was uh, it was really cool. So the building uh, that that I worked out of, which has since been torn down, um, was built uh, right after World War II. So we had, if you look at, if you sort of look at old school pictures of like an orchestra performing in a radio studio mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, you know the sound absorption tiles on the wall. And kind of the big open space, and then there was like there'd be windows in the walls where people could look in, but they were soundproofed windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was what it was like, and it, it was just it really was amazing. It was like it was like broadcasting from a museum. Um, and then we we they had modern gear uh, for us to use, but typically you would have well the the main uh, studio where the where the the main broadcast board was, you'd have a a huge. Um, just gigantic. I think there were 30, 32 channels. Um, wow. And it, it looked like a recording studio okay. uh, type, type control board uh, with the, you know, with the faders and it would have a button underneath it to, to uh, activate that particular element, whatever it was, either to play a song or play a commercial or turn on a microphone or start a reel to reel tape or something like that. Now, would and, you uh, use all thirty-two of those channels, or was it some of it just there for show? <laughs> uh, it was. They were all wired to something. Okay. So you would have, like, say, the first three would be microphone one, microphone two, microphone three, and then then, then the next six were the six uh, uh, tape cartridge machines that were above it, which was essentially uh, the cartridges that they and they everything's computerized now. Nobody uses this anymore. But the cartridges were what commercials used to be re- recorded on. It's very similar to like an eight-track tape. Um, it was just a, a cartridge that had a seventy-second tape loop in it, and you would record your sixty-second commercial on it. And uh, that's what was standard in the industry. So you'd have six of those, and then we had uh, like a couple of reel-to-reel machines, um, and then, like quarter-inch. Uh, tape reel-to-reel machines and then uh, we had uh, as kind of t- time went on there we got uh, DAT machines digital audio oh yeah uh, digital audio tape yeah 
Wow. Yeah, so the, we got the dab machines, and then we got mini disc machines. Remember mini disc? Very um, briefly, yes. Yeah, we had that, and that was going to be a thing. And then we uh, had, of course, a CD, um, a CD player, and then uh, even at one point we had record players. Still, uh, if something came in on vinyl, um, and just really, so each each fader was was wired to something, and then there was this. So the talk radio shows used to be, I imagine they're all streamed over the internet now, but the talk radio programming used to be delivered by satellite. So you had, um, you'd have like the ABC radio satellite, uh, which is where, say, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity came from. And then you'd have the CNN radio satellite. And so these were uh, satellite receivers that were tuned in to receive those shows. And then they were fed to that particular fader. So you would have, you know, you know, you'd, you'd have Rush going, well, you'd have that fader turned up because that's what you're broadcasting at the time. And then really just so on down the line. So any audio source would be wired. So that was the, the main studio. Um, so the guy, so there was always somebody in there until automation, computer automation came around uh, towards the end of my time there. Uh, there was usually always somebody in there 24 hours a day running the show, playing the commercials, you know, during baseball games and football games and things like that, you had to have somebody that would play the local commercials and the station ID at the top of the hour and all that. And, you know, if break in, if there was like severe weather or whatever. Um, and then there were uh, just, and so there was a, a main air studio like that for, for all of the radio stations. So the AM station had one, the country station had one, the 80 station had one. And then there were just, there were production studios uh, around which is where they would actually produce the commercials and so that was again that would look very much like any other kind of recording studio so you would have your control board you would have all the different kind of inputs because the commercials would come in on various sources uh, at the time now it's I'm sure it's all emailed it's all online but at the time they would actually mail the physical media so you'd get a reel to reel with a commercial on it and all of that um, and then they still had the big um the big kind of 1980s reel to reel. I think they had tape that was, you know, inch, two inches wide for like multi track, you know, 16 track recording and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, which that's all a big, that's all gone now. Everything's yeah. digital. Um, but yeah. And then, and then just uh, a big, uh, I remember we had a, every production studio had a uh, tape eraser in it. So like a giant, oh, like Matt, yeah. Yeah. You turn it, turn it on, and you know, run whatever it is off of you want to do your race, and uh, and so that that's kind of how it was. Man. And uh, and then I remember, you know, every and then everything there would be, there were racks where all the equipment would be stored. Um, you know, the emergency broadcast system that connects all the radio stations together was there. Um, they had a they had a a, a, a tape log that actually recorded the radio station written the tape turned really slowly and it recorded the entire radio station so the tape was so slow and the quality was so low that the, one day it would fit on one reel but it wow. was just it was just for legal purposes so they had a record of what was what was broadcast <laughs> and uh gotcha. and then and then just you know a whole wall of racks of everything and patch bays and things like that where you could if you need, you know, if if there was some oddball weekend show or we were going to carry the Super Bowl or something, and it was, and you had to tune it in on some bizarre satellite, you could go out there and you could do that, and you could patch it in. Man, that's um, cool. So yeah, so it was that that was kind of the layout, um, but very similar to a recording studio. Wow, I I, I get really nostalgic, nostalgic for like the old days of recording and radio, because I mean, like when I the first time I recorded. It was in a home studio, very similar to, to, to what I do, but he had an ADAT machine um, instead yeah. of like the big reel-to-reel. And my, my first time in a real studio, um, one of the guys in the band that I was in happened to be interning at a studio because he'd been like to Arizona for some recording school and he was putting you know put, putting everything to into application. And you know we had to go in like at midnight after places shut down, all that sort of stuff. And it was just, it was everything that I thought it would be going to a real studio. And I, and I, I missed those. I mean, because, you know, you and I coincidentally have both been in Memphis, Tennessee this year at different times. Yeah. And I know you saw the same thing I saw because, um, cause well, at least I think you did. Didn't you go to Sun Records or did you not this time? I, no, I did. I did. Okay. 
So you remember upstairs in the Sun Records tour where they show the old radio station um, where the guy broadcast, and I can't I can't remember the whole story. Like I was so enamored while I was there, but like they had like they brought the radio station over piece by piece the the room that he broadcast from. Yep. And that just that fascinated me. And then you see like all the all the equipment, and there's there's so much interaction. You know, and I mean, just just like when you talk about you know the contacts that you made, that sort of stuff. Like so, sometimes I start to wonder if the real problem with the music industry, and if anybody's been listening to the show, um, and you you caught a couple episodes ago where I had on, um, well, uh, Bruce and Mike and those guys, we talked talked about just you know where we think the state of things are, like. I'm starting to think, and I mean, I think you and I have kind of touched on this in some of our conversations before, but I'm starting to think that the biggest problem with the music industry is nobody sees each other. Yeah, I think I think you're right. There's no collaboration. Yeah, uh, because that's that's when the magic used to happen. Is how many how many times would you hear, hey, you know, we were in the studio and then so and so was there and we started making this song. Um, yeah, everyone's just kind of sitting in their house on their laptop, which they can have a studio in their house, and that's cool. But you're right; the social element's kind of lost. Yeah, like there's 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 some magic about having the studio where everybody can sit down and they can play. I mean, like even the little home studio that we, that we did, like we were all still face to face, and you know, you you had that collaboration going on. Like I can sit down, and I can plink around on my guitar, but to do any real songwriting, I typically need another person with me. Because like you, you need that interaction, those the bouncing of ideas. Now, talking about studios here, you also had a very interesting trip very recently locally here in Charleston. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I had uh, I was reading around um, the internet one time, and it was just by chance. I was like, I'm a, I'm a big uh, Lou Reed fan, uh, and I, I've been listening to his stuff since I was a kid, you know, 80s, stuff in the 80s, 90s, and then, you know, discovered the stuff from the 70s, the Walk on the Wild Side, all that stuff. But Lulu and, uh, is your favorite, right? Lulu. Oh, yeah. Lulu is Lulu is a masterpiece. Uh, you know, I hope that they make a Lulu box set someday. You're killing me. Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, I think like 48,000 people bought it, so, you know, some somebody out there cares. And by today's standards, that's probably still gold. Yeah, probably so, exactly. Yeah. Um, but in any event, I was uh, I was just kind of reading around. Well, then you know, Lou passed away about three years ago, and uh, I was just kind of reading the media coverage that, and I, I came across a thing, and it said uh, you know they before you know Lou knew he was gonna you know didn't have much time left, and so all of his CDs, like a lot of older artists, you know, his CDs through the years um, were poorly mastered and the quality was terrible. And uh, he wasn't necessarily a huge selling artist, so there really hadn't been a big demand to go back and you know remaster them. But I read a thing that said that he had uh, he had gone to Sony Music, which now owned the majority of his back catalog, and that they have before he died, he remastered the whole deal. Oh, wow. And it would be it would be coming out at some future date that he was there every day, you know, listening to the tapes and you know, making it sound the way he wanted and cleaning it up and all that stuff. And I thought, well, that's cool. You know, I want to buy that when it comes out. And uh, I came across, uh, it's a, it just said, uh, you know, mastered, you know, with, uh, you know, by Sony, by some guy named uh, Vlado Meller. And so I'm like, okay. You know, I just, I remember that name just from, you know, I was always a big music geek as a kid. So I would, I'd buy an album and I'd read all the liner notes. Yep, me and too. And you, you, you start to see some of the same names over and over again. You don't really know what these people do, but you just know they were there and they had something to do with it. Yep. Like it would, you get an album and say, Mastered by Bob Ludwig. And I'm like, wow, I wonder what that guy does, you know, but his name's on the record. I don't know what he does, but. So anyway, so I'm like, yeah, I've heard of that guy before. So I thought nothing of it. I just like, whatever, you know, I'll wait for the box set to come out and I'll go buy it. And then there was a story locally in the Charleston newspaper uh, a couple of months later that uh, this guy named Vlado Meller had relocated to Charleston to continue his mastering business because all of the all of the record labels, the major record labels, of which there are exactly three left. Wow. Um, they had they have shut down really most of their studios because everyone just records at home or wherever they want. You know, there's not, you don't have like the big Capitol studio or the big Sony studio, 
or the power station or whatever where people go to record the music because there's no need to pay for all that when you can just do it at home or in your garage or whatever. And uh, so he, you know, Sony closed their main studio in New York where he worked for like 40 years. And so he just kind of struck out on his own and he was down here on vacation and he thought, you know, this would be a good place to work and met up with a guy who owned a local studio and he said, well, hey, why don't you come here and you can you can live here cheaply and you can, you know, master albums here because everything is done by computer. So, so I saw that and I'm like, wow, you know, that guy, and he's, he worked for CBS records in Columbia and later Sony when they bought it. And he's remastered, you know, mastered albums for every artist you could possibly imagine. Everyone from Frank Sinatra to the Beastie Boys to Michael Bolton to Metallica to everyone you could possibly imagine. And, uh, so he moved to Charleston and I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool. And, you know, I saw from the, the newspaper website that he had, he had a, a website for his mastering business. And I just, well, I was home on the weekend or something, wasn't doing anything. And I just kind of, you know, how you start looking on the internet at stuff and I was browsing around and I, I went, Oh, okay. You know, there it is. And I knew I saw where it was located and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to email the guy. So I emailed the guy and said, hey, you know, I read about your work with Lou Reed and saw that you live in Charleston, so do I. And, you know, I just, I thought it was cool what you're doing, you know, and uh, so that's really why I'm emailing. And so I emailed, so a couple of days later, I get an email back and, you know, he's like, hey, you know, yeah, you know, I did that work with Lou. He actually, he's the one that mastered Lulu. So that's, that's how he is. <laughs> that's, oh, that's, geez. Now he didn't create the recording. I but know, I know, but he just, he just yeah, he just mastered it for uh, for the very you know you have to ma- he explained it to me you have to master it for CD and you have to master it for streaming and you have to master it for vinyl and it's all a different you know different EQ and adjustments and all that wow. stuff. Anyway, so uh, he so we emailed back and forth a little bit. He said, hey, you know, why don't you stop down the studio sometime? And I'm like, really? He goes, oh, yeah, you know, park in the back, whatever, just come on by. So uh, some more time passed. We worked it out. And he's like, you know, just come down on, you know, whatever day you have off at this time. And so we were able to, the planets aligned, and we were able to come up with a time. And I went down there, and it was just one of the coolest things I've ever done because he has all the gold and platinum albums hanging on the walls. That's awesome. Um, he's got, like, this big, you know, everything you could, again, everything you could possibly imagine, all the big uh cbs columbia artists from the 80s you know paul mccartney and he had uh the big he had a big uh, celine dion thing because he did all her albums and a big michael bolton thing he did all her their albums and he just mastered classical and jazz and it was really he his taste in music has nothing to do with what he does they come to him and they say we just made this album uh we need it to be mastered and uh, he's just done so well over the years that they keep coming back to him. And so now they pay him $500 an hour to, to master albums. Wow. And uh, so he, that's just what he does. And, of course, all the remastering stuff. He actually also did. This, is, this was probably the coolest thing I saw. You remember the uh, Robert Johnson box set that came out in, like, 1990? Oh, dude, that, yeah. We both have that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That just, like, the quality was awful because it was, it was mastered from, like, just some horrible source. I think they were uh, – were they 78s or were they possibly even, like, wax cylinders? Like, they might have been wax they, – yeah, they were either wax cylinders or, seven, you know, shellac. Yeah, like it was, it was rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was really bad. But he did that. He so he had the, no, the, really. Yeah, yeah. So oh. he had the platinum, the platinum record from the Robert Johnson box set on the wall. You know, next to of course the Wham album and the, you know, the Beastie Boys, and he did all the Red Hot Chili Peppers, all the Metallica stuff. Um, so yeah, so it was just really cool to talk to him, and he talked about the business and kind of how it works and just had all this amazing insight about kind of how the, you know, what the record business has become, how really no one's making any money anymore. But, um, I said, well, you know, I said, you do, I said, you do a lot of remastering. He said, well, you know, he goes, it kind of works like this. And he's from new, he's from New York. Um, so he has that kind of, you know, real straightforward New York attitude about things. Yeah. But he said that, uh, he said that where it is now, most artists make all their money touring. So they want to live forever because they want to go out and do concerts because that's that's where their cash comes from is wow. is from tour, you know from touring and doing shows. And he said the record company is oppo- is essentially opposed to that. The record company wants them to drop dead 
because the record company makes a lot of sales and makes a lot of money once an artist passes away because it then becomes a big surge in interest. Oh, that's awful. Uh, oh, that's, I, that's, a, that's That's what I said. That's ah. terrible. He, he said, so what you have is he goes, you have the artist who wants to live forever because they want to keep touring and making that money. And then you have the record company who doesn't want them to live forever and because uh, they want to be able to sell – so he just says everything is just a, a, a really a cold profit calculation as to what they, you know, what they come out with and what they do, and it, it really was very interesting. Um, but he, you know, he had all kinds of stories and people. Now it's just all everything's just electronically transmitted. So he was telling me he still masters albums for Julio Iglesias. Wow. And he's, he was telling me Julio had a new album and he just sent it to him and said, you know, hey, you know, go ahead and master this for me and. Actually, it's more work these days because he was telling me that uh, all the different streaming services have different guidelines for how they want the music to sound. Really? So he, said, so he said, I have to master an album for Pandora. I have to master it a certain way for Spotify. You have to master it a certain way for iTunes. Um, you know, all the various services have different requirements so of you, how, the, you you know, how they want it to sound. You know, it's funny. It's like, I mean, because, you know, you and I, we've listened to a lot of streaming music on different things at work and stuff. And um, I... I could have sworn there are times where a song sounds better on Pandora or worse on Pandora than it does on the MP3 that I have on my phone, you know, or sometimes even the CD. Oh yeah. I mean, the streaming services is, there's so many variables. Of course, it just depends what the bit rate is of what you're hearing. Yeah. So, you know, that's the speed of with which you're connected. So maybe the cell site's congested and your, or your Wi-Fi's congested and you're not and Pandora can't get a, a really great connection so it might it might de, you know default back to like a 96k um, or 128k mp3 file and you know so they can st- stream it still give you a you know music but at a lower quality um, so yeah the, the streaming quality is definitely less than something like you know buying a track on iTunes or the mp3 that you have saved on your phone for sure it definitely is and uh so he, he talked about that, and it, it just was really fascinating. I was there for about an hour. He's just really busy, but I, I was really just blown away by his, the generosity of his time and uh, just his willingness to talk about stuff. And he pulled up and played for me some of the, the tracks that, that, you know, the big – he played some of the big Lou Reed hits that he had remastered. And oh. just it was it – was, and so he's, he's playing like Walk on the Wild Side, the remastered version. Yeah. In, a, in his studio, and I was blown away by the sound quality and the clarity in the vocals. And you just, you hear instrumentation that you didn't even know was on the song. And um, yeah, it was really good. It, it just, it was, it was fascinating. Um, but it made you know, he told me, he said, you know, the record labels don't really care about sound quality. They really are there just to make money, which I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But it, it's it's not, you know, and, and they 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 cater to kind of the audiophile market, but at the same time, it just it's really just about the hits, you know, making the hits, selling the hits. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. It, it it was a it was it was a cool thing, um, but it he he just he's like. And he told me, he goes, you know, they tell me what to do. So he's like, they send me the the music. They say, we want to master it this way. Um, and he sends it to them. And they're like, no, we don't quite like that one. He has to do it again or whatever. Um, so it, it really is, he said, all the mastering is approved by the record company, the management, the artists themselves, and, and so on. So oh, that, that was a really cool trip for sure. Man, man. It, you know, to hear Walk on the Wild Side, because that, that, that song, like, any version I've ever heard of it, I've always loved. Like the production of it, uh, just all the things that are coming in and out. Like I, I can't, I can't even imagine getting to hear it like you know, on that system through that critical of listings. I mean, that that's a system that's set up to really reproduce, you know, accurately. You it, know it's I mean? uh, it. The best way I can describe it, yeah. Um, it sounded like the man was in the room singing to me. Wow! And you could hear. So that song was recorded, I, I think, with a stand-up bass. Oh yeah, yeah. So you, so you hear you hear the strings on the bass, and they're they're vibrating, and you hear all the percussion, just like the. I think they had a drum set with the brushes, um, and I'm just, and then they have the the uh, the female backup singers that that come in, and I just, 
I'm listening to this and then they play and then he played Satellite of Love and Perfect Day and you know some of the other songs and I'm just listening to this and I'm like it it, it sounds like the man himself is uh, is sitting in the room with me and he described the process which with which they did it is they had all the real you know the original you know multi-track tapes yeah and uh, you know he said Lou himself would come in every day he was at the end of his life so he had to have somebody help him in in and out of the elevator and you know come in and sit down wow. and they would just they would listen to every last thing and and you know go through and say you know what do you like what do you don't like that kind of thing so uh, yeah, yeah, it was really, it was really cool. And it, it made me wonder, I thought, man, you know, how great, you know, for anyone who's a fan of any artist, whoever that is, oh, yeah. to, to really, if you could just sit and listen to the music as it was originally recorded, um, you know, in a studio, I'm sure it would sound a lot different than it does once it's reduced down to like a Pandora or a Spotify, or you're listening on your computer or on your earbuds or whatever. But yeah, it was, it was quite an experience. You know, if you put me in a, in a room like that, like if I could get into to, to some of these record companies' vaults, you wouldn't see me again. Yeah, <laughs> I'd just I'd stand there. You know, the the only only communication for me would be ordering pizza. You know. Yeah, you're just in there listening. You know, you'd be in there with the with the the Metallica, you know, original master tapes. You know, and can you imagine running it through like a console and just being able to do your own mix? And saying, you know, microphone one, microphone two, the guitar is here, the lead guitar is here, the rhythm guitar is here, the bass is here, the drums are here, and you can just do whatever you wanted and hear it the way it was recorded. I mean, I can't even imagine. I would have so much fun with that. And, and you know, it's funny, though, like, you're talking about how, I, and I mean, this, this whole conversation, we've really talked about how the shift from analog to digital has happened. So you had all these analog circuits going, now everything's just this electronic digital transmission. And the biggest thing I miss about the old days, because I mean, you know, I'm sitting here in front of my iMac, I've got Logic, and I've got all these great tools. I, I, I have more recording power in front of me than the Beatles had when they recorded Abbey Road, you know? Oh, yeah, your, your phone has more recording power than Abbey Road in the yeah, 60s, yeah. exactly, right? And so, but what I miss is the sound of that equipment. Yeah, there is there is a sound to that old analog equipment, and and the thing is, like I can normally tell when somebody has gone in and used um, tape for something. Yeah, oh yeah. It, 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 like even even though it's been transferred, there's there's a difference in the in the way things sound on tape, especially the drums. You know. Yeah, it has a it has a warmer sound. I I've read where a lot of guys will uh, even though they're recording digitally, they'll get like an old tube amplifier. And uh, a real, real machine, and they'll record the drums yeah. analog, and then just pump it into the into the into Pro Tools or Logic or whatever they're using. And uh, yeah, dude, even yeah, Anthrax did that on their last couple records. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. It just is such a richer drum sound. And the thing is, like, I I love the things we've been able to do with digital technology. I mean, you know, I I I never thought I would have the ability to record like I do in my house like I am now I mean like you know I'm, I'm sure you remember the old like Tascam and Fostex 4 tracks like my, oh yeah absolutely my first recorder was a Fostex 4 track on a cassette tape and so you know when we say 4 tracks what what I never understood is that you had 2 tracks one way and 2 tracks the other way so side 1 was 2 tracks going one direction and that was your left and right channel and you, you know when you turned over the tape to listen to the other side well that was going the other direction and so a four-track recorder just essentially recorded all four of those tracks in one direction. Yeah, on one side, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's all a four-track cassette was. And I mean, then I used to do bouncing so I could get more than four tracks. And that's, that's another thing that I kind of miss with um, working with tape versus with you know digital. With digital, you don't have to really make any decisions. There's unlimited do-overs. There's unlimited undo. When I was working on cassette, man, and I, I, I would have loved to have seen, I would love to, 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 to have gotten to talk to, to a guy like Lou Reed who spent so much time in the studio and, um, and, and see you know, what, 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 what those de- decisions were like for him. Because you had to make a decision like, okay, uh, it, the, you know, once I bounce down, once I make this mix, that's it. It's printed. You know, I, I can't just, you know, take try take number 132 and put this digital plug in on it to make it sound like this. Like, this is the sound. It's either this is that or we do the whole thing again, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it really, what they used to do with so, with so little resources 
is is just unbelievable. Like if you think about like Sun Studios, where we were oh, in those in those days, I mean they would record like directly to an acetate, uh, basically straight microphone to record. Um, you know there were and then there were you know some tapes, but it would either just be one channel, you know mono, and that's it. And so you're just doing a live recording in the, in a room with a microphone in the middle, and yet they were able to take such limited resources, and it just it sparked their creativity uh, to just do you know the Beatles. I, I think I read they did Sergeant Pepper with an eight track uh, machine. I, so, I think they were finally given the four track, honestly. Oh, I don't so know it was, if it was four. Eight. Yeah. 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 So so there you go. So they and they had to cut every time they wanted to do something, you had to cut the tape. So they would, you, I hear the stories, or read the stories about, you know, well, what we did was we strung the tape down the hallway and we had one machine on one end and one machine on the other end so that we could create the delay that we wanted or, or the effect that we wanted or yeah. whatever. Uh, you just, you had to work harder for things. And um, yeah, it just, it's, it's not the same. It's, I think about, I used to see, they, at the radio station where I worked, they used to do radio plays. Uh, way way back in the day but they still had some pictures hanging on the wall of what that looked like and so they would do uh, radio soap operas and they would have all of the things in the room that would create those sounds so they had a door that you would open and shut you know when someone was leaving and they would have a staircase that you would walk up and down to create that sound so literally they used to have to create their own sound effects whereas now of course you would just have you would just have like a like a soundboard yeah. on your screen where you would just click whatever sound you wanted to make. So push your button. On the, yeah, on the one hand, it's it's easy and the technology is amazing and it's phenomenal in the progress, but it, it's the experience is not as rich and the creativity isn't as as much because you're not. And I guess that goes for anything. I mean, you, you can email anybody in the world instantly, or if you sit down and you can write a letter. You know, take the time to, to actually write it out and put in the effort. It's the same thing. It's it's we're kind of the victim of our own advancement, I think, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. There's a band that um back in Pittsburgh, back in the day when I was, you know, when I was in my band that we used to play with, they were called Logic. And uh, I lo- love those guys. Like they were one of my favorite local bands. Um, and honestly, like I still listen to them today. Um, but they had a T-shirt, you know, for their band and on the back. Um, it said technology breeds weakness. Yeah, and at the time, like I'm, I'm like, oh, whatever, you know, you, you, you know, get, just get, get over yourselves. Like this is a great time, and like, here I am, you know, I mean, almost 15 years later, and I look back, I'm like, yeah, maybe, may, you know, maybe there's something to that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you can, you can have. It's what people always talk about, like kids today. They have everything, but at the same time, they have nothing. Um. And when we were kids, we had to, you know, your parents would say, "Go play," and they throw you out of the house. Yeah. And so, what's more creative, that or sitting in your house with your with your PlayStation and your internet and your tablet and your high speed connection, and you have everything all at once. But in in the same time, at the same time, you kind of have nothing at all. And it's you know, we had to get by with you know walking around with a stick and looking to see if anyone threw anything cool away that you could take home and use. I mean, it's just really, it's just yeah. totally different. Yeah, I it's, about that. It's really just, you had to be creative and you had to think of things to do. And when we were on road trips, we had to entertain ourselves. Well, now the, you know, the car of today with, you know, a lot of times people have kids. I mean, the car is an entertainment center. Yeah. You know, you have the DVD and the music and the, smartphone and all that stuff so and i'm not saying that's bad i love all that stuff but does it does it make for a better experience i don't know yeah i mean heck i'm guilty of it man i mean you know you and i have talked a great length about child rearing and just all the challenges of being a parent in in today's technological age and i mean for the most part my wife and i really try to steer away from too much time with the ipad too much time with the phone um you know we give them things to read things to color with things to draw things to stimulate their creativity but I'll tell you, man, like, you know, if it's a, a late night, like, like say, say we're coming back from Isle of Palms or Folly Beach and we don't want the kids to fall asleep, we will absolutely put a movie on on an iPad and um, let them watch it, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't let them hold it. Like, well, I, I mount it to the seat so they have to, like, you know, look up and keep their heads up. And I know I sound like a crazy hippie parent right now. But, you know, that that's, that's the kind of concern I have for my kids. Like, 
I want them to enjoy and get the benefits from this technological age, but I don't want I, I don't want those those key things that I think have been lost um, to to be lost to to them in their generation. You know. Yeah, I think I think it's a balance. So, like when we were kids, and you know, TV was really big. Your parent, you say, oh, you know, you get the TV, and it's like, okay. So your parents would say, okay, you get to, you know, it becomes a reward or it becomes it rationed. Yeah, that's you what know, the iPad I, is now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay, you know, here I have the, I have this amazing, and I don't have kids, so I can talk like this, but <laughs> I, you, you sit there as a parent and you have this amazing instant babysitter in your hand. You have this tablet, and you go, I have a child who's bored, who's going to want something, who's going to aggravate me. And I can give them this. It's like magic. And they'll be entertained for as long as the battery lasts. And, you know, how do you balance that with still being a good parent and still, you know, making sure they socially interact and all that stuff? It's it's really hard. I mean, because it would be really hard not to just put on the video and say, you know, hey, kids, we got a 10-hour drive. But the good news is, you know, dad's got 10 hours worth of movies for you to watch. Yeah. You know, and so that that serves your immediate need of entertaining the kids, but you know what's it doing to their mind? And uh, it's that's a tough thing. It really is. That's I can't imagine. All right, so we'll start wrapping this up here. But before we go, one thing that I absolutely have to talk about because I've always found it fascinating. Yeah, um, is the fact that um, you know my audience is not going to know this, but you were at one point you were five hundred pounds or almost six hundred. Almost 600. So almost 600 pounds. Yeah. And you lost it all uh, on your own. So no surgery, you know, nothing crazy, no fancy shakes, just healthy eating and exercise. So you got to talk about that just a little bit here. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up, I was a heavy kid. Um, Always was. And, you know, as I got older into my teenage years uh, and I started to get to work and have a job and have my own money, I just my weight exploded in high school and I was 300 pounds pretty quickly in high school. And by the time I graduated almost 400 pounds and, uh, I was just always really big, loved to eat. Um, not particularly very active, didn't play a lot of sports or anything like that. And, uh, and then, so just kind of, you know, once high school was over and into college, um, and then when I got into radio, which is a sedentary sit down job, I, uh, my weight just exploded up to the point that by the time I got to, I would have been uh, 37 years old. I was at almost 600 pounds. I was actually the 577 was what I weighed when I went into the hospital. Wow. And, uh, you know, I had all, there had been times where I lost weight, but then I'd gain it back. You know, you always have those struggles where you're trying and trying and trying. And I had tried a lot of different diets and things like that. And uh, I reached a point where I had a health crisis. Uh, I had what they call a pulmonary embolism, where the because of just the inactivity and, and my weight problem, the, the blood clots would collect in my uh, in my legs, and they travel to my lungs, and they just sort of it's just like a silent killer. They, they I say just, now that could have killed you, right? Yeah, it, it, it could have, and uh, in one in four cases, it does kill people instantly. Oof. Wow. Um, it's, it's next to cardiac, it's the number two leading cause of sudden death, uh, after cardiac arrest. And, uh, so I didn't know any of that, but I went to the hospital, was rushed to the hospital with shortness of breath and, uh, found out that's what the problem was. And then I just really had that moment in the hospital where I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, in that particular situation, because they're trying to get the blood clots to break up, uh, I was in the hospital for seven days and it was just miserable being hooked up to the machines and having to have somebody help you do everything. And they wouldn't let me take a shower and just on and on. It was a very miserable time. And I just decided then and there I've had enough. And I think it was just really a lifetime of just weight struggle and just being held back. And, you know, at that high weight, you're really not able to do anything. It's, you know, you're not able to fit in a car or fly in an airplane or, you know, shop at the regular clothing store or really do any of the things that normal people do. And, uh, so yeah, you know, I just, I really just snapped and I said, I, I'm, I've had enough. I'm not coming back to the hospital. I'm, I know what to do, you know, just common sense. I knew, I knew it'd be very difficult and it is difficult and it gets harder every day, but I, I just really couldn't take it anymore. And, uh, my, you know, our, our health insurance would have gladly paid for the weight loss surgery, 
but I had had a, and have a lot of friends, some that have been successful with it and good for them, but uh, you know, more and more people that would have that surgery and they would initially lose the weight, but then I'd look up two or three years later and they'd be big again. And I'm thinking, well, that didn't, you know, really work. Um, and I'm like, I don't really want to risk my life for something that's not going to, you know, be a sure thing or whatever. So that's just when I decided I just I'm like, I've had enough. And it really was just hitting rock bottom, uh, which you always hear about where there's just the pain of doing the same becomes so great that you change that you just you can't take it anymore. And I, I couldn't stand just the pity and the sympathy from people. And I just didn't want the attention and I don't want people to wait on me and I don't want to be a burden to my family and society and all that stuff. So, so that was kind of my mindset. And wow. I just, I, I started out initially, it really wasn't a thing where I started out and I said, you know what, I'm going to lose 375 pounds. That's not really where my mind was. I initially thought I, you know, once they told me that big number of that 577, I'm like, you know what, it would be really awesome if I could get down under 500. And so that's kind of where I started. And I just made adjustments along the way. You know, I started out just walking and just, you know, really eating a lot of healthy food. And, uh, and then I started to realize I needed to make other changes. Like I, I had to get rid of some of my friends because I realized that kind of like an alcoholic has to get rid of their drinking buddies. <laughs> I found, I found that I needed to get rid of my eating buddies yeah, because that's all. Yeah. Enablers. Exactly. That's what they did. And then I, I realized that the next thing that needed to go was was really my uh, my satellite TV. I realized that I watched so much television and I watched so many baseball games and I watched so many shows off the DVR that that, that was also contributing to to my problem. So I got rid of that. And uh, and then when I got under five, you know, it just it starts to snowball. And I'm like, you know what? It would be really great if I could get down to 400. And I remember when I got down to 400, I thought that I thought this is it. You know, 400 pounds. I, I felt amazing. I hadn't weighed that since high school. And I thought, you know, maybe maybe this is it. You know, maybe. And so more, you know, I got into walking and long distance walking and running and stuff like that and well, heck I now thought, you well, ride what 100 miles on your bicycle yeah yeah so i took up biking so it just it 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 just grew and grew and grew but it, it really was and is a wholesale lifestyle change adjustment you really have to become a different person in everything in your life you know from overly negative people that you know the enablers you talked about you know really anything that's standing in your way has to go so it really just becomes a big change but you know i tell people when you can't take it anymore when you have truly had enough then it, it becomes crystal clear what has to happen and i had thought when i was taken to the hospital that i was having a heart attack and i was going to die um my cardiologist uh, a few years earlier had told me you know listen if you had a heart attack at this big weight that you're at um they're not going to be able to really help you because they're not going to do open heart surgery on somebody that weighs over 500 pounds. That's, you know, you would die. They wouldn't be able to put you under really. Wow. Um, so wow. I, I, so that was kind of in the back of my mind. I thought, well, you know, this is going to be it. You know, this is really the end of the road. And when they told me what happened, they're like, well, you didn't have a heart attack. I thought, well, that's, you know, that's good news, but you know, this is what it is. I thought, man, this is, this really sucks to have eaten myself to this point where I'm suffocating from blood clots and then it just became, it just becomes a not where it becomes just not worth it. At that point, the cost benefit is not there. It's like, there's no food that I can eat that or a TV show that I can watch or anything that, that is worth this. Like it just, it, it, it got to that point. And so that kind of motivates me to this day. I try to, I, I try to enjoy the little things you know, being able to, you know, I, I drive a small car on purpose because I can fit in it because every day that I get into it, I'm like, Hey, this is awesome. I fit in this little car. Yeah. I remember when uh, we were traveling together the one time you're like, get the smallest car we can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and exactly. I, I, I remember just going, why? You're like, well, cause we can fit. I'm like, we need space for the suitcases too, man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so your big long legs are, you know, crammed up in a little car. I know, man. Like I'm uh, six foot tall, brother. Like, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, being able to fly in an airplane coach, yeah. you know, I just, I took a long, just did a long flight from Phoenix uh, back to the East Coast and, and it just, I don't even think about it. I don't think, oh, you know, so all those things, I'm like, I'm just tired of that. I'm tired of being limited. You know, I don't want to die at 37. I don't want to, 
I just, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I'm like, I just can't, like, I can't, they're just, it's not, it just isn't worth it. And I, I wish that everyone could get to that point that, that is really in that position because it's just, it's, it's just not worth it. I mean, I've had all the cheeseburgers I need. I've had all the ice cream that I need. I, I just, I, so yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of the story in a nutshell. And it, it, you know, it only gets harder as the time goes on, which is, is really not the reality check that people want to hear. Um, because I mean, you see just being around me day after day, you know, how I'm just eating the same thing every day. And, you know, sometimes I eat too much and sometimes that's all I want to do is eat. And sometimes I forget to eat and, you know, so different things happen, but you know, all in all, you know, I'm here, I'm surviving and, and that's what happened. Man, that's crazy. Well, Brian, thank you again for coming on the show tonight. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I love the stories you had to share. Um, anything you want to plug before we go? No, no. I, you know, for anyone that's interested, I do maintain a blog and a website, uh, which you can find at BrianGaney.com. Just my name. It's B-R-Y-A-N-G-A-N-E-Y.com. You can go there. I, I wrote a book about my weight loss experience, which is uh, linked on the website as well. You can get it from Amazon or you can download it for your, uh, you know, iPhone, iPad, Kindle, that kind of thing. So, and if anyone wants to email me directly, you can do that as well. So, um, that's where I'm at, my little corner of the internet. All right, man. Well, hey, uh, listeners, until next time, make some noise. Make some noise.